Hello, Andorian scientists, honorable warriors, stout admirals, and misunderstood Klingons. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm Mike Wong. We've made it to episode 47 of Strange New Worlds, which is a milestone for any Star Trek-affiliated subject because the number 47 is a bit of an in-joke in the Star Trek universe. 47 appears an inordinate number of times in Star Trek, a tradition that dates back to the next generation and carries through the rest of the franchise. So in honor of this, I've got a very special treat for you, our first guest who was actually on Star Trek. His name is Brian Brophy, and he appeared as a guest star on the Next Generation episode, The Measure of a Man, where he portrayed Commander Bruce Maddox. Brian is currently the Director of Theater Arts at Caltech, which is how I got to know him. And through the numerous experiences we've shared over the years, Brian has become more than a professor or a mentor to me. He's also a friend. So let's go talk to Brian about being on Star Trek, putting on a Star Trek show at Caltech, and how he sees theater helping scientists fulfill their true potential. This is what I love about you, uh, how much energy and jovialness you bring to every situation, Brian. Like, we can't even start the interview because you're just laughing. <laughs> I don't even know why. I guess because you're leaving. You know, you, you became such a big part of um, you became a big part of my life in many ways, Mike. I mean, you really have, and so you you kind of you kind of like snuck into my world here. And you became a, a big part of it in ways that made me more comfortable, but also encouraged me to, you know, push people in uh, in directions that they might not have otherwise gone. You know, giving me the sort of the courage, like, yeah, brother, you can do that. I'm like, I can. I'm like, good, let's do it. And so, you know, even I remember the the, the, the class with like Comic Sans, like mm-hmm. when I first sort of. We crossed the path, and you talking about your experience of being on the yearbook as in, in the under as an undergrad, mm-hmm. you know, and how how important that was to you, and then your fascination and passion for Mars and exploration, and just the the <laughs> the non trivial uh, Comic Sans stories that you were creating, like we just you know eliminate that from <laughs> from the fonts in in our uh, in our universe, and so. Yeah, I just have to say to you that I, I've just really been such a joy to know have known you all these uh, four four or five years now, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right, yeah, we, we did Star Trek what so. three the Boulder Cook three three years ago. Yeah, yeah, two and a half or so. Yeah. Well, no, no, that's right. Yeah, three years ago because of the reading. Yeah, the yeah. storytelling. Well, yeah. the storytelling. Storytelling was, in those before that. Even before that. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah, so Amazing. we've tracked each other for at least the last four years, you know, in each other's universe and yeah. in ways that is non-trivial. That's that's really nice of you to say, Brian, <laughs> because I feel like my experience with you has been very similar, that the way you've influenced my life is to allow me to explore different areas of my own personal self mm-hmm. that I didn't even expect mm-hmm. 
to find here at Caltech. Yeah. You know, yeah. I came to Caltech because great place to be a scientist, yeah. uh, to do space exploration, yeah. JPL, etc. And I anticipated making all of those scientific and intellectual connections here, but then to realize that I also had a passion for theater and for storytelling. Yeah, who knew? Who I mean, knew? yeah. Um, so you've been a really big influence well, in my life as well. Thank you. I mean, it's we, we, we did some really nice projects together too. I mean, Boldly Go definitely being one of the the highlights of my last 10 years. I mean, I just finished up my 10th year here. I guess I'm going into my 10th year, but I just uh, was recognized for my 10 years of service wow. to the university. So that was, that was an interesting moment because I, I didn't, you know, my wife asked me, she goes, well, do you want me to come with you? I'm like, no, don't worry about it. You know, I'm just, it's, you know, I get a little award and all that. But then you get into that room and there's people, like a uh, hundred people in the room. And one guy had been at Caltech for 50 years. He was getting a 50 year award. And I'm like, huh? <laughs> and, and then when I'm standing there in the, on the stage with the president shaking his hand, I went, wow, I, I should have invited my wife to this because I didn't realize, you know, it was a big deal. You it know, is. It's a big deal to, it's a good marker. The 10 years is a really good marker. You know, as an actor, you know, from 88 to 2000, you know, you kind of go from project to project to project, or if you're lucky enough to be on a series, you get to do it multiple years. But um, I've pretty much been in academia since 1999. So I'm actually going to my 20th year of being a professor and being a faculty member and working yeah. working with the various departments here on the campus, which I, I never imagined I'd, I'd be at California Institute of Technology, the number one research university in the world, you know. And, and I, and my wildest dreams, I wouldn't have I would have seen myself here. And so, you know, to really acknowledge being here for 10 years and really kind of changing the culture of of Caltech and like kind of pushing the capacity of what we could do here and having these linkages between the different departments and finding these creative intersections on the campus which has been really very satisfying uh, for me in lots of ways and just seeing so many different people getting out of their heads, getting out of the labs, realizing they, they can have an emotional life, they can have a, a serious social life too that doesn't involve too much danger <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. Some, some some students have come back and like what happened well i i fell off a a rock face because the, my climbing partner didn't know what he was doing and you know busted up her knee you know that's getting out of the lab but here you know inside our theater we we want to be dangerous you know we're not going to hurt anyone but we definitely want to push the boundaries of what we can do is and what we can express and what we're allowed to express. And I want to encourage people to express and giving them an opportunity to reflect on who they are, to write about who they are, to perform themselves and perform other people that are inside them, you know, to shape these other worlds, these interior worlds that they don't show other people and, and create a safe space for that to happen. And that's what I hope I do here. If you've listened to previous episodes of Strange New Worlds, you may know that I was involved in a Caltech theater project called Boldly Go, which was a Star Trek parody musical written by Cole and Grant Remen. Grant was a buddy of mine at Caltech. We entered grad school at the same time, lived in the same apartment complex, and both did laundry on Saturday mornings. 
While Grant was a theoretical physicist with a talent for theater, his younger brother Cole was a theater major at the University of Minnesota with a passion for science. This dynamic brotherly duo wrote a brand new play that they gave to Brian, who agreed to do a test run in the spring of 2015. After a quite successful stage reading in front of a thunderous audience who were left drooling for more, Brian decided to pursue Boldly Go as Caltech Theater's annual flagship production for winter 2016. I asked Brian how he knew that Boldly Go was the right direction to push the theater program. Well, I, I think it was the quality of the writing, the quality of the of the music, the quality of the dedication that the two, the Remen brothers had brought to it. First, it was like, this is 325 page libretto. I'm like, <laughs> wow. So it really was based on that. And it was also based on the reception that we had in our first reading that uh, happened the previous year, in 2015, the spring of 2015. And we rehearsed for like four or five weeks. And then we invited an audience into the Hamidman Auditorium, which holds about 150 people. And we put it out there and we had 175 to 180 people inside the auditorium sitting in the aisles. And when we first came out on stage and we just had the shirts on with a little Star Trek logo, mm -hmm. people just started clapping. Even before we started singing or, or doing anything, I'm like, oh my God, yeah, just that. And we so we, we just, so it was crazy, like, all right, I'll do it, we'll do it. You know, there was just, there was no turning back after that. People were like, okay, when, when, when are we going to see it? Like, so then we... I started to assemble a cast in the early fall, and we were really fortunate to have some amazing choreographers too, Tegan Wall and Crystal Dilworth, and both of them had been, you know, trained as as dancers, and so they came in and started making brand new dances that had never been seen before for the show. Right. Um, and what's amazing is that Crystal and Tegan. They're Caltech-affiliated people. They're yep. they're scientists and yep. science communicators as well. Absolutely. And, yeah. and and that was one of the great things about this show for me was that not only was I living a dream, you know, being on Star Trek, yeah. but also doing it with so many technically gifted people. And you know, I'm 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 singing alongside JPL engineers who make spacecraft fly literally, <laughs> and or drive um, the Mars rover. Yeah. yeah. It was an amazing experience in that regard that the entire Caltech JPL community came together. Yeah. And, and I think that's something that's very unique about theater arts at Caltech. At other institutions, I don't know if other institutions, first of all, would even dare to put on a Star Trek movie yeah. musical. But, <laughs> but, but there, you know, you have a much narrower set of people engaged in this kind of activity. Whereas at Caltech, everyone from all across the community, from undergrads, the graduate students, mm -hmm. the senior scientists at JPL, all coming together to do something that they're really passionate about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, for me, it's probably the, the biggest satisfaction I get from the work that I do here is, is to have all of these people coming from off the mountain there, mm -hmm. uh, um, down into the humble stages of, you know, Raymo Auditorium where we did the show. 
You know, something that was absolutely extraordinary about Boldly Go was that it was an opportunity to work with another science-minded Star Trek actor. So I'm looking at this framed um, news article from the Pasadena Star News um, that Brian has here in his office. And it's got Brian Brophy, the president of Caltech, Thomas Rosenbaum, and Professor Catherine Faber, who's Dr. Rosenbaum's wife, and then also a Star Trek uh, alum, Robert Picardo, who is also, um, well, he played the... Uh, EMH on Star Trek Voyager, and he's also one of the board members on the Planetary Society here in Pasadena. Um, Bob Picardo joined us for Boldly Go. He played an admiral in the show, mm-hmm. and I remember that that one rehearsal when Bob just showed up. Mm-hmm. You know, I looked up from my script and I saw him out there, and I was just like, "What? What? <laughs> what is he doing there? What's he doing here? So how did how did how did you swing that, Brian? Well, a funny story with Bob is that I understudied him years ago in a in a production done at the Mark Taper Forum, and I I'd, I'd done my episode of Star Trek back in the late eighties, I guess, and Bob was now like a big star on. Um, Star Trek Voyager. Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> and it was just starting up. I mean, the, the, the show was just starting up. So he would come in every week and Bob would say, oh, I, I, might, I might not be going on this week because, you know, I don't know how long the filming is going to take, you know, with Paramount and Law. We're not quite sure. So every week I'd be like, maybe he's not coming in this week and I'll be able to play <laughs> the role. Every week for like three, four weeks he kept doing that. And I'm like, then eventually it was like, no, it's not happening. So um, he was very generous, and then we had uh, cast parties over at over at his house and jumping in his pool. It was really great. So so I had a really good memory of him. And uh, as we were looking to bring in someone to play the admiral, I can't remember his admiral name. somebody <laughs> admiral somebody. <laughs> <laughs> so we started to reach out to various. Uh, various actors who had been on Star Trek. And we reached out to Q. Mm, John um, Delancey, yeah. John Delancey, and he was very close to coming on. I remember sending something out to William Shatner and his and his agent, <laughs> and, and then getting back a response, you know, like, oh, he'd be happy to do it for, like, you know, $50,000. <laughs> like, I think that's... That's maybe not quite our budget, but <laughs> it's close to it. Yeah. And so, you know, then eventually he's like, well, what about Robert Picardo? And like, he, he's local, he part of the Planetary Society. So I reached out to him and he said yes. And he came by and he checked it out and he was a big hit. People really loved having him here. And it gave a certain weight to what we were doing as well, that someone of his stature in the Star Trek pantheon of actors Coming in, I think it really gave the the, the other players in the group uh, a, a real sort of bona fide uh, star, mm-hmm. you know, in our, in our presence. And so I kind of that raised the stakes a little bit too, in in, in some ways. And so I think that lends us a certain weight to it, which I think is fun. And he was great to come in. You know, he came in with his own ideas, and and he was very funny, and he was very dry. It, it was really happy to have him. I think really. Give a lot to the performance that we had. We did what, two shows with him? Yeah, that's right. So Definitely. Bob Picardo did two of the seven shows, the right. unprecedented seven shows that we Unprecedented. We did. Yeah, because usually there are six shows, right? Yeah. Friday, Saturday, yeah. Sunday, two weekends. Yeah. Um, but you had a, a show um, to the second week because 
the other shows were all sold out and yeah. people across campus were being like I need a ticket to see Boldly Go. My friends have been telling me to I go, know, and I can't I get one. So yeah, we could have, we could have, we probably could have run that another month. Yeah, I remember trying to get the president's wife, Kathy Faber, like I need to get somebody in. It's like I don't know if I can or not. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that was right. We had the unprecedented seventh show, and then Steve Collins played the. Admiral, and I played it once you, too. You That's did, right. yeah. Oh, so God. that you were another one of those bona fide Star Trek <laughs> alums <laughs> playing that so. role of the Admiral. Yeah, let's talk about that experience. Your your Star Trek episode from the second season of Next Generation in 1989. Oh, thank you for that. That's like 30 years ago, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus. Um, yeah, you played Commander Bruce Maddox on the episode titled "The Measure of a Man." Yeah. Brian has just gotten up and he has retrieved a picture of this gorgeous young man <laughs> <laughs> in a blue Starfleet uniform. It's, yeah. it's Commander yeah, like, Bruce Maddox. I'm like 30 years old there. Yeah, it's like 30 years ago. That's um, crazy. This is one of the seminal episodes of all of Star Trek. It's basically on everybody's top 10 list. So if any listener hasn't seen The Measure of a Man, I encourage you to go do it. And... In this episode, basically, Commander Data, Lieutenant Commander Data, is put on trial. He's the android bridge officer of the Enterprise. Mm -hmm. And your character, Dr. Maddox, wants to basically tear Data apart mm -hmm. and effectively end his existence. What exactly will this work entail? I am going to disassemble Data. Dismantle him and find out if he is sentient or not. Exactly, right. yeah. And and perhaps use that knowledge that you, you would gain from that experiment to mass produce data mm -hmm. and create more of them for the betterment of society. Yeah. And so, I mean, you're basically the villain, but you're a sympathetic villain because you, you've got good motives at heart. You want to, you know, if you have a, if there's a great machine out there, a great computer, you want to be able to put a, put a great computer in yeah, yeah, everybody's there, hands, yeah. yeah. So tell me a little bit about how you got that role on Star Trek. <laughs> I had, I had, uh, I, it was my third time auditioning there in the Paramount lot. And so I, the, the first time I went and it was for a, a blobular character that didn't really have any facial features. And I was like, I didn't get the part. I'm happy. They brought me back again for another one. And they brought me back for the third time for another, a third episode, a third uh, audition for a, a different show and I, I got the part and I was uh, not surprised because you know at that age you know I, I'd, I'd known Star Trek and it was uh, it was a really great role I'm like this is really exciting to get this and then the night before we, we were to shoot it I got rewrites I got like rewrites and this is I was working as a, as a waiter at Chasen's restaurant in Beverly Hills and so I, I remember coming home late at night and uh, my wife's like, okay, they just uh, dropped this off. And it's like, oh, this is all, <laughs> this is all new, all new techno babble is yeah. really what, essentially what it was. And the anterior filament, the, the filaments of his anterior cortex. I mean, a lot of different language. So I'm like, okay, uh, I, I got this. I got this in my head. I think I know what I'm talking about. And so you show up the next day and there's, you know, a good 40, 50 people around the sat you know, from the gaffers to the grips to the assistant associate, the producers, the makeup. And it's and it's kind of intimidating with a whole bunch of really good actors that are in the show, not the least of whom was, was Patrick Stewart, mm -hmm. who was one of the probably 
great classically trained English actors of, of the 20th century, you know? So he was sitting there and all of a sudden I heard his voice. I'm like, oh shit, <laughs> I'm in trouble. <laughs> That's how I felt too when Bob Picardo showed up to a Boldly Go rehearsal for the first time. No one knew that he was coming because Brian was still trying to get him to commit to the part. He just showed up. And there I was, miming away at my computer console, and when I looked up, there was the doctor from Voyager. I'm pretty sure I missed my next line, completely slack-jawed and mind-boggled. Now, I'm trying to imagine that feeling raised to the nth degree, because that's how intimidating it would be to actually be on the Paramount lot staring down several of the most talented actors on TNG. Luckily, I never had to do that. But Brian Brophy did. The first scenes that we did was the, the sit-down scene. We were all huddled around the table, and you know, I have to put forth my argument about why I should I should do this. And you know, Brent Spiner's there and Jonathan Frakes and Captain Picard. Explain this procedure. <clears throat> Ever since I first saw Data at the entrance evaluation at the Starfleet Academy, I have wanted to understand it. I became a student of the works of Dr. Noni and Soon, Data's creator, and I have tried to continue his work. I believe I am very close to the breakthrough that will enable me to duplicate Dr. Soon's work and replicate this. But as a first step, I must disassemble and study it. Data is going to be my guide. You gotta really be focused to be able to play with these guys too, because you know, part of coming on as a guest star in these episodes is a little tricky. The chemistry that's already been created between all of them, mm -hmm. um, even though it was only the second season, and you're kind of this intruder in a sense into this. It, my character was a, a bit of an intruder as well. So to come into that kind of that world and to be able to pull it off is, is no small feat, you know? So you really have to have steely nerves, you know, to be able to, to go up against Picard and you know, Patrick Stewart, you know, who very much understated everything he does, but that voice is in unmistakably British and pissed off. <laughs> like, so you, I had to hold my own. And so as an actor, you have to be able to, even if you're not 100% confident, you have to portray that sense of confidence because you'll get eaten up if, if you don't. And you can tell right away, oh, no, that guy's not there. So I, I, a lot of it was uh, was really slowing down my my process, you know, in ways to just be able to sit there and be with the other actors. One of the greatest stories that Brian told me was about an interaction that he had with Sir Patrick Stewart on the set of Star Trek The Next Generation. You ready to hear it? It might literally take your breath away. I don't know if I've told you this story, and I can probably tell this now, and I don't think I'll get in trouble, but oh, there, was, there was one moment I came in one day and I, I couldn't breathe. I had, because the Paramount lot, sometimes they it's, it's a little dusty, sure, you know, sure. it's, it's yeah. huge. And so one day, one of the scenes, I, so I came in and I, I wasn't my good, I was breathing. My breathing wasn't quite, it didn't have full uh, nasal passage, you know, 
And at one point, I was, you know, getting ready, and there was a face-off between uh, Captain Picard and myself. And he was trying to intimidate me. The character was trying to intimidate my character. But what happened, it slipped into another actor talking indirectly to another actor about how he was breathing and how much noise he was making. So, so at one point, to no one in particular, but loud enough for everyone to hear, and he said something like, well, someone please make him stop breathing like that. <laughs> and I'm looking around going, is he, who's he talking about? Oh, he's talking about me. And then I was like, oh, right. So then I, right away, I was aware of how I was breathing. And then I sort of went inside I just sort of calmed everything down, noiseless breathing. And I remember doing the scene at that point. And then I rose up from my chair to confront him, mm -hmm. actor to actor, character to character. And finding that what he had given me was this kind of internal rage of maybe trying to intimidate me as an actor uh, because it really was an actor to actor because it wasn't in character that he was doing it to me so uh so when you watch that scene uh you'll, you'll uh, go back and watch that scene you'll, you'll sort of know the story behind that a little bit which was the character in the scene wants to win but the actor wasn't it was an intimidation thing but it was he was also a classically trained English actor, and I was the American actor too. You know, so there's there's that always that challenge of the Laurence Olivier versus the Marlon Brando kind of thing. Not to say that either one of us is in that category; he's more in that category than, than I am the Brando. But you know, it was that sort of American versus English style of, of competition too, in a sense. So, so that was a real learning experience for me and I, I more than held my own in that scene. So I was very proud of that because you, know, you can, you know, under the withering gaze of, of, of an actor like that, you could just kind of dissemble. So it was a real interesting challenge as an actor to, to my Picard talk, you know, pull down your one piece and just mm -hmm. kind of rise and, you know, get in his face. Your response is emotional and irrational. Irrational? You are endowing data with human characteristics because it looks human, but it is not. If it were a box on wheels, I would not be facing this opposition. I will tell you again. Data is a valued member of my crew. He is an outstanding bridge officer. If I am permitted to make this experiment, the horizons for human achievements become boundless. Consider every ship in Starfleet with the data on board. But then actually, you know, and then and later on, towards the end of the shoot, he brought me into his trailer and, and he, he was very polite and... Uh, and it was a sweet guy. You saw a real actor who loved actors, too, you know. And a lot of actors don't love other actors, you know. But it, it felt genuine that he brought me into his trailer and really sat me down and we had a really nice chat. It turned out really, really nice. And I, I couldn't have been more proud of the work, too. And how it stands up over the years, too. I, I haven't watched it recently, but I see it like, all right, got some good work going on there. And uh, I was always surprised that it never came back. Mm. And I thought that he would come back. Yeah. I said, yeah. my agent, I'm like, well, what the hell? Why doesn't why my character come back? You know, he's so still young. He should come back and, and have another go around. And, yeah, I don't know what happened with that. But uh, 
You never know. You never know what's going to catch on with people. But I know it is definitely one of the top ten. I remember being invited to 25 years of Star Trek on the Paramount lot years mm. years later. And, you know, Nimoy's there and Shatner. I mean, all the, the, the heavyweights are there. Joan Collins was there. Very excited. And I remember being on the lot and, and realizing, you know, what a, a, an amazing franchise it is. You look around and you do, what a what an honor to be part of this show, one of the top shows of the last 25 years. And yeah, I'm really happy that it continues on, too. I know they're doing another a new series with, uh, with Picard again, right? Yeah, is Patrick Stewart is back. Isn't he back in action? So, so you could be back in action, too, Brian. <laughs> Start a letter-writing campaign. <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> Go back to back up against that, that guy again. Yeah. Oh, I think that would be actually really awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't realize that that kind of dynamic between two characters that two actors are playing can spill over into, mm -hmm. I guess, the real world, into the prep work mm -hmm, of going mm -hmm. on set. Mm -hmm. And I guess that happens quite often, that the dynamics between the characters that two people are playing like infiltrates into off-camera as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But it was really interesting how he pointed out the breathing thing. Because if you look at classical vocal training that happens in, in Rada, where he was trained, a Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, you know, there is something about the the breathless, the the soundless breath, I believe, is what it's called, and it's a it's a technique. It's a very British technique, but it it's for everybody. But it's it's part of the the training, and uh, you know, I didn't go through that training. I didn't go through the route. I didn't want more of the route of the sort of the method acting, the committed dell'arte, the emotional memory, and. Um, <laughs> the David Mamet School of Acting. Just do it, man. Just do it. <laughs> don't think about it. Breathing is something that I learned from you. Well, I, I don't want to say that I learned how to breathe from you mm. because, like, I've been breathing my entire life. But, yeah. but <laughs> you know, actually taking into account and being so aware of breathing is something that I learned from being not just in Boldly Go with you, but also in the storytelling mm. class mm -hmm. that you run here at Caltech. So. Well, we'll get into the storytelling class in just a sec, but but the breathing thing is is something that I've taken, you know, because before we go on stage or before we even do anything really, and uh, for for you and your classes, we have to breathe and we have to open our our lungs and our diaphragm and get ready and project, yeah, breathe, yeah. You, say, you know, breathe to the to the end of the room, to the back of the auditorium. Absolutely. And that is something that I've taken off stage and actually mm. into the yeah. scientific arena Absolutely. because when I go give a talk yeah, at a yeah. conference now and I do get nervous yeah. giving a talk you know That's I'm right still, we all do I'm still a very young scientist yeah and there are all these big wigs you know who they've written hundreds of papers and you know they could tear you apart with a single sentence in order to calm myself and to prepare myself for being on stage and, and talking about my ideas which may conflict with theirs I do your breathing yeah. exercises yeah it, it helps center myself and um, hopefully helps give me the capacity to give a, a good talk. Mm -hmm. um, Learning how to control your instrument. I think that's kind of what Patrick Stewart was telling me as a young actor was that everyone can hear you breathing. Stop it now. You know, like, <laughs> but seriously, the, the, bre the breathing has been one of the foundations for storytelling, for good storytelling, because you have to be in control of your instrument. You don't want your instrument to be in control of you. You, you. you develop that capacity, that vocal capacity, that range, that pitch, that the warmth of your voice, you know, the different shades of your voice, the pauses, the inflection. And 
I think it's one of the most important things in telling a story. I mean, you got to have a good story, obviously. But sometimes a bad story can be told better with good technique and good breathing technique. I'm breathing right now. I'm like, what? <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> you can hear it. You can hear it. You're like, it's not... As the showrunner for the entire operation of Theater Arts Caltech, Brian directs the flagship theatrical production each year, helps run Mach 33, a festival of new science-driven plays, and oversees numerous smaller theater events throughout the school year. But one of the most subtle but impactful ways that Brian affects the scientific community at Caltech is through his Storytelling for Scientists class. So I asked him, why is the art of storytelling so important for people in science, technology, engineering, and math? I realized that a lot of the graduate students and the postdocs and the undergrads, specifically the postdocs and grad students, they don't have a lot of professional development. So that if you're going to go out and give a talk uh, in Toronto, your PI expects you to just be able to do that. But... There's a lot of technique that, that goes into actually telling a good story. I mean, obviously, the TED talkers right now have specialized coaches that they, that they work with, you know, over and over again. You tell that story 150 times, you know, until you, you get it right. You get the inflection right. You get how you want it to sound. And so when we first started, when I first started doing it about five years ago now, I realized at the end of the 10 weeks that people who learned the technique, learned the craft of it, wrote their own stories, found their own voice, figure out how to connect to an audience, how to create empathy or, or the pathos with their logos, what the thing, the idea, the word itself, the thesis, the, the central idea that they're trying to get across because 60% of telling the story is, is the effect that it has. You know, the, what, what, what is the emotional aspect of the story that you're telling because it's a story and it's emotion that's what grabs us the ethos or how the person comes across to us you know the believability of them is only about 10 percent of it all oh he's a phd from caltech he has a certain credibility you know so we believe that right away then there's like another 30 percent which is about what is it that they're talking about but the 60 percent is the emotion that's into the story that carries their logos or carries their idea. So to really get people to understand that it's really, they don't care about all the slides. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like one student had 85 slides. It's like, I don't care about your slides. I care about you. I care about your story. What is your story? So eventually I gave him the task of, you don't have any slides at all. And he kind of panicked. I was like, what do you mean? You don't have any slides at all. You no, know, you can't have any slides. And he, he took a breath and came back the next session and without any slides at all, he went into a really deeply personal memory of him growing up in Russia and of coming from a really poor family. And he told us the most amazing story that wasn't about his amazing slides or his research. It led into that, but it started out with who he was. And we gasped when he did the story because he hadn't explored or he hadn't he hadn't exposed himself in that way. He he kept talking about the research and this is it and those are the great slides, yeah, all of that, you know. 
But then when he, he opened up into who he was, brought us tears, quite literally, brought us to tears. But then it, he was able to bring his research in, and then we connected to the research because we connected to the human being. I had another class where a student talked about uh, an eating disorder. And I was like, well, you feel comfortable talking about this. Yes, I think people need to know about this because scientists are human beings, you know, and we're not perfect. And we have these other parts of ourselves that, that we're not terribly proud of, but we either can hold it inside of our head and keep it into this buried, subjectified, dark guilt or whatever it is, as opposed to almost shining a bright light on it and say, you know, this is who I am. And I don't apologize for it. I'm trying to move through this. And I had one gal who talked about an experience of her brother who was in jail. And it was something that was, that she'd been carrying around for quite a while, you know, esteemed postdoc, but she'd been carrying around this story that she couldn't really talk about until she told the story. And at the end of the class, she like, I could see her shoulders relax. I could feel the embrace of all the other storytellers that, that we gave to her because she was able to let go of something. And that's the power of the story for me. In that sense, storytelling is kind of like a scientific exploration, albeit an internal one. By reflecting on our experiences and verbalizing our thoughts and feelings, we reveal new ways to convey our ideas and discover new truths about ourselves, parts of our being that had long been ignored or forgotten. We have these disowned selves. If, if we look at it in terms of a, of Apollo, the god of the sun, the god of reason, the intellect, the rationality, and Dionysus, and this other wild freedom of bacchanalias and, you know, over-drinking, over-sexualized, you know, presences, and then this rationality. I, I think that a lot of times the scientists have gone into that area of absolute rationality and caution and conservative views on, on things because they rely on verifiable, reproducible research mm -hmm. and numbers and all of that. So they get kind of in that space. So when people go into this other sort of Dionysian quality, if we just look at it through the binary yeah. of emotion versus intellect, the emotion oftentimes gets disowned. That's a disowned part of ourselves that oftentimes, I see it a lot when I was teaching in India, I saw that so much pressure was on these kids to be one of the 10,000 chosen for the IITs in, in India, the Indian Institute of Technology. And so they were almost infantilized in many ways in their emotional life. And to a lesser degree, you see it here because in America, the United States of North America, you, you see a... Um, you see that emphasis on, especially the students that come here, the undergrads that come here, the grad students, that a lot of their lives are spent in the, the, the highly rational Apollonian mindset. And so they don't often explore this other side of them. And I think it's to their detriment that they, they, they don't explore that other side. You have to, in a safe environment, explore these other disowned aspects of yourself because that does damage to the intellect as well. It does damage to the Apollonian side of us. You showed the dichotomy between Apollo and Dionysus. Uh, you also talked about 
ethos, pathos, and logos as being sort of a, a triad of things that you need in a good story, those often remind me of Kirk, Spock, and, and Bones, right? And so Spock, of course, being the logos. Are you just bringing this up? Did you just make this connection? Or you... <laughs> no, I, th- I think it's uh, huh. I, th- I think it's actually central to what made the original Star Trek series catch so many people's attention is that... Um, so Spock's the, the super ego in a sense, or he's the... Um, I'm, I'm so bad at what Greek things are which, but Spock would be the logos. Spock would be the logic, that's right, the, logic. the word. And then I think um, pathos, what is pathos? Pathos is... What, 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 ethos? Ethos, yeah, what is ethos? Oh, is your, eth- your, your ethical The ethical, so that would or, be bones. Or your believability, or um, yeah. your credibility. Yeah. To, to a degree. Yeah. So How do you conduct yourself in the world? Your ethos, yeah. Dr. McCoy. And then the, McCoy. the pathos is the, the passion, right? Uh-huh. That's, that's, that's interesting. That's, that works. That's Kirk. That yeah. works, absolutely. Yeah. Good, I like that. Um, so to be a good storyteller, you need to engage in all of those. Yeah. And, and here at Caltech and at many scientific and technical institutes, the students are too geared towards just the logos, yeah. just the Spockian or the yeah. Apollo. Or, or they, you know, it's the... Ethos, you know, it's like the credibility. Yeah, I am a scientist. I know how to do this, you know. So it's really the pathos then that you're trying to inject into everybody through the yeah, storytelling. Yeah. It's the it's the Kirky and yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <part>. No. <laughs> without the arrogance, without I don't know. Arrogance, yeah. <laughs> uh. But no, that, yeah, but that is right. I mean, it's it's crafting the story so that people can hear it because I think. A, from a lot of the stories that I hear, is that, that, that it leaves us out. It's like, what does this have to do with our lives? Mm-hmm. I think if once it goes outside of the committee, you know, once it goes outside into the world, you know, how does it? How does it capture our imaginations? What is it? What, what is the relevance to my life? You know, it ha- there has to be a certain relevance to, to our lives, and I think those are the really good stories that that, are, that get told. Otherwise, it's like. Horsey, 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 horsey. And, and I... science is so full of those types of stories. <laughs> which which stories? The, the types of stories that connect to our lives, mm. but often they're too shielded in the jargon. Yeah, and... shielded in the jargon. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and and so I remember... I just want to write that down. <laughs> <laughs> <That's your laughs> go for it. Um, when you were introducing this class on the, on the very first day of huh. class when I took it, you said, so why why is there a storytelling for scientists class? And, huh. and one of the reasons, besides you know enhancing the entirety of the human condition put into these stories by these scientists on the personal level, it's also increasing the confidence mm. of scientists in delivering scientific messages and delivering these Absolutely. scientific stories. Yeah. You, you brought up the example of if you go out into the public and some random person asks you about climate change for instance Mm. right which is a story a scientific story that impacts everybody's life here on earth and you're too stuck in your scientific mode of logos and Mm. ethos Mm. and you say you know what compared to some other scientists that actually study climate change I am not an expert in that field. I have nothing to say about it, which is too often the case for mm-hmm. scientists here. It's like you can only really speak to your area of expertise, mm-hmm. your narrow domain in, in which you are the world's expert, because otherwise you're going to get shot down by some other scientist when you're speaking within mm-hmm. the high levels, the highest echelons of, of the scientific community. But when you go out into the world and you want to convey the types of stories that science has to tell yeah. you don't need to be yeah. the world's expert in climate yeah. change to be yeah. able to 
teach people yeah. that uh, human beings have a, a great influence on the planet and to just raise that the confidence of students here at Caltech to engage the public in the stories of science. Absolutely. And it's funny because I go to a lot of the thesis defenses and maybe my, uh, my sample size are all composed of Caltech theater players mm-hmm. who are scientists as well. But I, I go and I, I watch their defenses and there's, there is something about being able to connect with an audience that I, I get drawn in because they understand that their career depends upon being understood. Their career depends on being understood, not just by their peers and by the researchers and scientists who are in the room, but to reach out beyond to get that grant money, if nothing else. You know, you got to be able to, you know, go. You're, you're, you're at a dinner party and the head of the NIH is there and you better have your elevator pitch. You better have your three minutes in your back pocket. And that's why I emphasize in the storytelling. What's your three minutes, man? What's your, what's your 30 seconds? What's your one minute? You know, what's your 17 minute? What's your Ted talk? You know, this range of how you communicate with people. And, you know, I think it should be a mandatory, <laughs> sounds kind of draconian, but you know, I think it should be a, a mandatory type of skill before people leave Caltech, I mean, especially the postdocs and the grad students. I mean, the undergrads are just overwhelmed <laughs> you know, by the <laughs> no curriculum. Yeah. It's like, you'll, you'll get that later. But I really have enjoyed working with the grad students and the, and the postdocs too. Because one, they're better at time management, but they also realize the importance of communication in when they go out into the real world. You know, when they go out to the... Berkeley Labs or Washington or back at the, in the D.C. or they're talking policy. They got to be able to do that. They got to be good at a dinner party, and that's that's really kind of what it comes down to. So, yeah. So I love I love the storytelling class. It's, it's one of my favorite things at Caltech to do. Theater is a really small corner of Caltech's campus, and no one enters Caltech solely because of the theater program. But those scientists and engineers who have chosen to engage in theater arts at Caltech have felt the benefit of Brian's presence on their lives. I know I have. And as we, as a nation and as a planet, continue our perilous journey into this rather unique moment in history, Brian's mission grows ever more important. You know, I know there's, we're going through a time period right now where scientists are getting vilified or forced to bend to particular partisan rhetoric about things. And I think it's very dangerous because we depend on the scientists to give us some accurate information, you know, to do the research, to, to do the studies, to sit patiently for hours looking through lenses and optical telescopes and crystallography and um, the different in waves that are resonating through the universe and helping us to understand what, what's going on around us with, without the political bias. You know, we really need to get that out of our current discourse because I think it's dangerous when we have to abide by a, a particular narrative because it, it, it confuses things and it's dangerous. It's dangerous for a democracy when we are told what to think. Anything I could do to help scientists find, find their truth, find their, their story, and find their passion in telling their story, I'm all in. That's wonderful. Well, yeah. Brian, thank you for <laughs> your stories. 
and for impacting the lives of so many scientists here at Caltech for the past 10 years. Uh, <laughs> it's been a great journey. Yeah. I, I think you've really made a big difference in, in the community here at Caltech. Thanks, and, Mike. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Namaste. Namaste. <laughs> <laughs>